Well, one of my uh, favorite activities for breaking the ice in social situations is called table topics. Has anyone here ever uh, played table topics? It's essentially just like a deck of cards that's, uh, that have great conversation starters on them. This is great for getting conversation going. And one of the classic table topics questions is this. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? You ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that question? I used to think that if I was going to be an animal, I would want to be a monkey. Because okay? I grew up in the 90s. I uh, was influenced by the movie Monkey Trouble. Right? Monkeys seem like they have a lot of, of fun. I thought it would be really cool. But then I went to South Africa. had a bad experience with a monkey. Okay? <laughs> At a zoo. It didn't hurt me, but it stole something from my backpack and ran away with it. And like, everyone had to like, chase it. Uh, it was a whole uproar. It was very embarrassing. And so I'm not a big fan of monkeys anymore. Uh, more, more recently, I thought that maybe if I was an animal, I might want to be an otter. Because otters are cool, like they're really playful, you know, but they also, uh, like they're really sweet, like they hold hands when they, when they fall asleep so that they don't drift apart. Did you know that? Have you seen that? It's adorable, it's very cute. So I thought maybe, lately I thought maybe I might want to be an otter if I was an animal. Um, what about you? If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Take a moment to think about that. If you want, you can even just take a moment to, like, to, to talk to your neighbor about it. We can have a mini round of table topics right here. I'll give you like 10 seconds. All right, all right, all right. We'll rein it in now. Now, it's fun uh, to talk, and, and for sure, like, continue the conversation. It's an important conversation. Continue it uh, over lunch and all of that. Um, and as fun as it is to talk about what kind of animals we, we might want to be, when it comes to deciding what animals we actually have the most in common with, there is actually a, a biblically correct answer to that question. Scripture is very clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is not a gray area in Scripture. There is no debating it. The animal that we have the most in common with as human beings is sheep, right? Again and again, Scripture compares human beings to sheep. There we are, right? So cute. And, and maybe, I don't know what kind of ideas you came up with, maybe this is a disappointment to some of you if you were hoping to be something like a wolf <laughs> or like a mountain lion or something like that. You know, I mean, sheep have a reputation uh, for lacking in intelligence. So there's that. There's that, right? Sheep are known for being followers. They don't have very many skills or defenses. So it's not necessarily like a boost to the ego to think about ourselves as sheep. But I actually think that sheep are often misunderstood. Okay, I don't think we give sheep enough credit. They've actually done studies and they've discovered that sheep have very high emotional and social intelligence. They can remember faces for years. They can respond to emotional, uh, emotional and facial cues. So I don't think it's fair to say that sheep aren't smart, but what sheep are is herd animals. 
See, they're herd animals. They don't have strong survival instincts or strong defenses, and so they're wired to stick together. And they're wired to follow a shepherd who can lead them and who can take care of them. So when scripture talks about us as sheep, it points to this reality that as human beings, we are dependent on God. And we're designed to live in this close, connected relationship with him. We've been working through a series on the book of John, and we've been looking really specifically at the identity of Jesus, at how Jesus lived and the things that he said and the ways that he interacted with people. Because we live in a world where there are all kinds of ideas flying around about who God is and about what it means to be a Christian, right? And some of them don't look anything like what we see lived out in Jesus. And so it's really important that as followers of Jesus, we are keeping our eyes focused on him. Because we believe that Jesus reveals to us what God is like and how he calls us to live as his followers. Colossians 1 verse 15 tells us that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. When we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to chapter 10. And now this is one of those passages of scripture that's really well known, right? We're all familiar with this idea of Jesus as the good shepherd. I mean, I work at a social service agency that's called the good shepherd, in artwork, Jesus is often depicted as a shepherd holding little tiny lambs, right? And stroking them and hugging them. This, this picture of Jesus as the good shepherd is very familiar to us. But this is also one of those sections of scripture where when you actually read through it, there are some verses uh, that are just beautiful and easy to understand and that give you the warm fuzzies. But then there are other verses that kind of make you go... Huh? What's he talking about? What's he talking about? And that's because we tend to pull this passage out of its context in the book of John and read it on its own. But it's actually part of a conversation that begins in chapter 9. And you remember, when the gospel of John was written, it didn't have chapters and verses, right? Those didn't make it into our Bibles in the form we have them now, anyways, until the 1500s. Right? I think that's when youth pastors started wanting to do like sword drills in their youth group, so they had to add them. I'm pretty sure that's why. And as helpful as the chapters and verses are, sometimes they make us forget right, that we need to look at how the passage fits within its broader context. And John chapter 9 gives us some really important context uh, for understanding what Jesus is talking about um, when we're going to be looking in the passage that we're looking at in John chapter 10. So before we read through our passage, I'm going to give you a quick overview 
of what happens in John chapter 9, okay? Just so that we have that context, we have that background information. So, John chapter 9 begins with Jesus and his disciples walking along, and they come across a man who was born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus a question that reveals a belief that was held in this culture. Okay, it's a very common belief. The disciples ask, was this man born blind because of his own sins or because of his parents' sins? Which to us, this question sounds kind of ridiculous, right? But in our world, they believe, or sorry, but in this world, they believe that if somebody was born with a physical affliction, like blindness, it was a sign of God's judgment either for their own sin or for the sin of their parents. So Jesus shatters this belief, okay? He responds, he says, it wasn't because of this man's sins or his parents' sins. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. And then he heals this man of his blindness, which ends up causing quite a stir in his community. This man becomes the talk of his town. And the people end up taking him to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because they realized that Jesus had healed uh, this man on the Sabbath, which was a pretty big no-no in the eyes of the religious leaders. And so they take him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are frazzled. Okay, they don't know what to do with this man. They have no framework for understanding what's just taken place. And they are not okay with the fact that Jesus is disregarding the religious rules that mean so much to them. And so they question the man, and then they question his parents, and then they question the man again. And ultimately, they end up throwing this guy out of the synagogue because he believes that God must be behind what Jesus is doing. Because he believes that only God could heal somebody the way that he was just healed by Jesus. And so he gets kicked out of the synagogue. And we can imagine how confused and how rejected this guy must have felt, right? I mean, he'd spent his whole life isolated, you know, rejected, and finally, he'd been healed. Jesus had healed him, and it was like there was suddenly a shot of having some hope that he could belong, that he could be treated with dignity. But then he, he describes what, has, has, what he's experienced, right? And he gets kicked out. He gets excommunicated. And I love this. Jesus hears about this. He hears what's happened to this man. And then he goes and he finds him. And Jesus reveals his identity to this guy. And the man believes in Jesus. And he worships him. And then there's this, uh, the conversation kind of takes a turn. And this is where things start to get heated between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus says to the man that he's healed, I've come to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they can see that they are blind. 
right? So he's giving him insight into the deeper spiritual meaning kind of behind the miracle that he's just performed. I've come to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they can see that they're blind. And you know who's standing nearby? Some Pharisees, right? I just picture this like Jesus says it like just loud enough, right? Just loud enough. So Pharisees are standing by and they hear this and they say to Jesus, hold up. Are you saying that we're blind? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus says, actually, if you were blind, you'd be off the hook. (laughs) You wouldn't be guilty, but you remain guilty because you claim that you can see. And then he goes right into our passage this morning. So this is the context. This is the context for this passage. Jesus is in a conflict with these religious leaders who threw this man out of the temple. He's putting the Pharisees who are acting like gatekeepers to the kingdom of God in their place. And he's contrasting his leadership to their leadership And he's giving insight into this question that's been flying around about who he actually is. So here we are. Let's have a look. John chapter 10, verse one. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger, they'll run from him because they don't know his voice. So Jesus uses an image that would have been really familiar to his listeners. It's a little bit less familiar to most of us today. He talks about a sheepfold, a pen where sheep were kept during the cool nights of the winter. And sheep pens in this time were made of stone. They would often have briars along the top uh, to keep out thieves and robbers. And a gatekeeper would watch over the pen to make sure that nobody who was unauthorized uh, got in. The picture painted in this passage is one where several flocks were all kept together in the same fold. Kind of like a daycare center, okay? Like, we've got a daycare center here. Kind of like a daycare center for sheep. And a shepherd would come, call his sheep, and his sheep would recognize their shepherd's voice. And that shepherd's sheep, they'd come to him and they'd follow In the Middle East, both in Jesus' time and still today, this is how shepherds led their flocks. They didn't have sheepdogs that would round them up. They didn't drive their flocks from behind like you sometimes see. The shepherds call their sheep. Their sheep know the sounds of their shepherd's voice and they follow him. Verse six, those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me 
were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They'll come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Or I like how the NIV translates that. Last verse, it says, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus changes the metaphor here to highlight another aspect of who he is. He says, I am the gate. Not only is Jesus the shepherd of the flock, he's also the way in. He's the way to the Father. He's the way to salvation. He's the way to real and eternal life. And we can imagine, knowing the context, how this would have sounded to the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus, right? They just threw this man out of the temple because he'd insisted that Jesus had healed him. Jesus was bumping up against the religious systems and their power, and they didn't like it. And here, Jesus is implying that they're the ones who are out to steal, kill, and destroy, and that he is the only one who can offer peace and joy and life to the full. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. So now Jesus isn't talking about robbers or thieves. He's talking about hired hands. He's talking about people who are willing to care for the sheep as long as they're getting paid for it, right? As long as it's benefiting them. But they don't actually love the sheep. They don't really care about the sheep. So when a predator shows up, they run away. A true shepherd... A good shepherd is willing to give up his life to protect the sheep. And here Jesus says, he is the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep I have other sheep too, ones that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. So Jesus says here, he's got other sheep he's gonna bring into the fold. Then verse 17, the father loves me because I sacrifice my life. So I may take it, take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. So Jesus makes it clear that the sacrifice he's about to make is one that he's choosing to make. Jesus is on the way to the cross. But even though the cross is going to look like defeat for him, 
He's saying that actually he's gonna give up his life voluntarily. He's choosing to do this as a sacrifice because of his love for the flock. And then verse 19 tells us how the people responded. When he said these things, it says, the people were divided, sorry, were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The people were divided. Some people wrote, uh, wrote Jesus off, said that he must be demon-possessed. Others saw his teaching, his, they saw his miracles, and they decided that he must be sent by God. The people had to make a decision about which voices they were gonna listen to, about which voices they were gonna trust. They had to decide whether they were going to listen to the voice of Jesus or to the voice of the religious leaders who were the most influential voices, right, in this culture at the time. And we have a similar decision to make today. We live in a world where we're surrounded by voices trying to tell us who we should be and how we should live. We live in a world where we're surrounded by voices that are trying to tell us what we need to give our lives to if we want to belong and we want to feel like we have value. I mean, there's a whole new category of celebrities called influencers, right? People that others look to for one reason or another for advice on what to buy and how to live. Any advertising company knows that if you want to sell something, you don't actually need to convince people that it's good. You don't. You just need to convince people that a lot, a lot of other people bought it. Right? That's why we see things promoted as bestsellers. The truth is that, like sheep, we are wired to look for somebody to follow. We all want to belong. We all want to feel like we matter, like we have value, like we have purpose. We all want to feel like we're living the best lives possible. It's like we're all looking around trying to figure out what voices we can trust, who we can look to, to lead us forward, to show us the way forward. And in our culture, so many of the voices out there are really just trying to get as much money as they can out of us, right? Or are trying to win us over to their camp to make us hate the people that they hate. So many of the voices over there are trying to trick us into giving our lives away to things that don't really matter. They're voices that pull us away from the love of Jesus. They're voices that don't have our best interest in mind. And Jesus shows up in this sea of voices and he says, I am the good shepherd. Listen very carefully for the sound of my voice and follow me. Follow me. So what is this good shepherd like? 
in a world full of good-looking influencers with perfectly curated lives and captivating messages, why should we look to Jesus and follow him? Our passage talks about four aspects of how Jesus relates to us as our shepherd. And we're going to look at those before we wrap up this morning. The first one's this. The good shepherd knows us. He knows us. Throughout John chapter 9, the chapter, uh, that chapter about the healing of the blind man, the word know is used again and again. Okay, go home and read it, check it out. It's, it's pretty um, powerful when you catch it. It's, it's easy to miss, but it's really important. There is a huge emphasis on what people know and on what they don't know. The man's parents know that their son was born blind, but they don't know how he got his, his vision back. The Pharisees know that Jesus is a sinner. The man who is blind doesn't know whether or not Jesus was a sinner, but he does know that he was blind and now he can see. The Pharisees know that God spoke to Moses, but they don't know where this Jesus guy came from. One of the key themes throughout the entire chapter is who knows what about Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say anything about what we know. What matters to Jesus is who we know. And more importantly, who knows us. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. It's this picture of intimacy, of closeness and relationship. And isn't that what we all really want? It's to be known and loved for who we are. Isn't that why so many people are willing to pay $6 for a coffee at Starbucks? Right? Because they actually like write your name on the cup so you feel seen. As Christians, we can get really distracted focusing on and arguing over what we know about Jesus. And good theology matters, it's important, but the invitation of discipleship isn't to know about Jesus. It's to actually know and be known by Jesus. That's where transformation comes from. That's where peace and joy come from. That's where we find this rich and satisfying life that Jesus talks about. So the good shepherd knows his sheep. Secondly, the good shepherd leads his sheep. Now, when we think about seeking God's guidance and direction, I think often what we really want is like a five-year plan. You know, is that just me? We want like a five-year plan, you know? We want to know how the story is going to end, and we want to know all of the steps and twists and turns that we're going to have to make along the way. We want to make sure that we get it right. But here's the thing. Sheep don't get maps. They don't. A shepherd doesn't lead his sheep by giving them step-by-step -step directions. Instead, he helps them get through whatever terrain they might need to face as it comes to them. 
He makes sure that they have water and food when they need to be nourished. He gives them rest, pulls them back in when they wander off. He tends to their injuries. He fights off predators. The good shepherd leads his sheep by calling them forward one step at a time and taking care of their needs along the way. And often in our lives, we don't get to see how this story's gonna end. We don't always know where God's taking us next. But we can be sure that whatever we face, God will be there with us, taking care of us, leading us forward one step at a time and pulling us back in close when we lose our way. The good shepherd knows his sheep the good shepherd leads his sheep. And thirdly, the good shepherd sacrifices for his sheep. Now, I tend to picture shepherding as kind of like a boring job. I don't know about you, but I, I imagine it to have a lot of lying in the grass, right? Cuddling cute little lambs, trying to find shapes in the clouds, that kind of thing. But there are times, apparently, like I've, I've, read, I've read, that there are times when shepherding is actually really intense and dangerous, where shepherds have to protect their flock from wolves or lions or other dangerous animals or lead them through a dangerous terrain. And Jesus says that the sign of a true shepherd is that he's willing to face danger, that he's willing to give up his life for his flock. He's not in it for himself. He genuinely cares about his sheep. And of course, Jesus knows that he's on the way to the cross and that he will give up his life as a sacrifice for humanity. In his commentary on this passage, N.T. Wright says that the best expl explanation of what happens on the cross is not found in heavy volumes of abstract theology, but in this very parable, in this simple picture of a shepherd's willingness to give up his life for the sake of the sheep, to protect them from harm. The cross is where God's love for us is most fully revealed. And it's where Jesus shows us what it looks like to be people who love so deeply that we're willing to set aside our own rights and privileges for the sake of others. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. You wanna know what love is? This is how we know. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The good shepherd knows his sheep, he leads his sheep, he sacrifices for his sheep, and lastly, he gathers his sheep. From the very beginning when God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that he was gonna make a great nation from him and bless them and give them land, there was always this additional promise that through his people, all nations would be blessed. And now Jesus says that he's got other sheep he's gonna bring into the fold. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus made a way for all people to be reconciled 
to God. The walls that once divided us and kept some people on the outside have been torn down and everybody's invited to experience life in the kingdom, life with the good shepherd. And Jesus says there's one flock and one shepherd, right? So there's a call to unity. It's a call to unity here. Sheep know instinctively that they need to stick together if they want to survive. And as followers of Jesus, we need to stick together too. Not by building up walls around ourselves and isolating ourselves from the rest of the world, but by caring for each other, encouraging each other, and learning from each other. We belong to the Good Shepherd, who's this perfect picture of what love looks like in human form. And as his people, we're called to be a community that radiates with the love of Christ a community that loves each other well, even when it's hard, even when we disagree, and even when we don't understand each other, even when we make mistakes and we need to say sorry and try again. And it's only Jesus who can empower us to do that. I love how one commentator said it. F.F. Bruce says, the unity and the safety of the people of Christ depend on their proximity to the shepherd. When we stay close to Jesus, when we keep our eyes focused on him, it draws us back to the reality that what holds us together is bigger than what divides us. We're one flock with one shepherd held together by his love and grace. The good shepherd knows us, he leads us, He sacrifices for us, and he gathers us together as one flock. And what's our job as the sheep? Our job is to stay really close to the shepherd. That's the job description, right? That's it. It's to let the voice of the good shepherd drown out the other noise that pulls us in different directions. It's to hear him call us by name to trust in his love and provision and to follow him wherever he leads us. Easy, right? Not always, right? It's actually, it's, it's very simple. It actually is very simple. But we all know that it's not always easy because we live in a world that's full of distractions and our hearts and our minds are so easily pulled in other directions. And so it takes intentionality takes intentionality to step away from the rest of the noise and the chaos and to focus our attention on Jesus. It takes intentionality to pause, to make sure that the voice of God, the voice of the good shepherd, the voice of love is the voice that's leading us and guiding us forward as we live and make our decisions and interact with others. And maybe this morning, is an invitation for you to do just that. To recalibrate your heart to the voice of Jesus. And then to carve out some space to do that more regularly 
as you move forward from here, whether it's through reading scripture or engaging in community or practicing solitude and silence. There are all kinds of different ways that we can draw close to Jesus, right? And it won't look the same for all of us. It'll show up differently in different seasons of our lives. But whatever it looks like, the call and the invitation is just to draw close to him. In our broken world that's full of all kinds of voices pulling us in all kinds of directions, Jesus stands before us and he says, I am the good shepherd. Follow me. Follow me. His voice is a voice that we can trust. His love for us is perfect, and he is the only one who's able to follow through on his promise to give us life and life to the full. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up to the front, and I'm going to uh, pray, and then we're just going to take some time to reflect, to reflect on what voices it is that we have been listening to, whether it's been the voice of Jesus or whether it's been those other voices pulling us in different directions, and then on how Jesus is calling us forward. But first, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. And so often, God, we try to take things into our own hands. We get stuck with anxiety and worry and fear. We feel like we need to control things and figure it all out. But God, thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the truth that what you call us to is actually just to stay close to you, to follow you one step at a time as you lead us forward, as you show us the way, as you provide for our needs, as you bring us into rest and peace, as you fill us with your joy and your love. And I pray that this morning, God, you would renew and restore each one of us in that truth. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite you, as we often do, to just kind of still yourself, to center yourself in God's presence. Take a few deep breaths. And in God's presence, just let yourself reflect on this question. What voices have been distracting you or pulling you away from Jesus? What are the voices that you've been listening to you that have pulling you, been pulling you away from him? And just name those before God now. And now what would it look like to let the voice of Jesus be the one that leads you forward in that area of your life? What would it look like to let the voice of Jesus be the voice that you're listening to, that you're trusting? Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that when we get distracted, when we get pulled off course, that you just draw us back to you. And I pray that each one of us would move forward from this place to 
just with a deeper sense of your presence, of your love, with a deeper awareness of your voice in our lives so that we can listen and we can respond in obedience as we trust in your love. In your name we pray, amen.